0: Our scripture for this evening comes from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 2. Uh, We've read the narrative of Hannah. We've seen how God has been faithful and given her this child. But now we're really treated to a precious moment here where we see a poem. Uh, This has all the hallmarks of Hebrew poetry. and, And yet it's also listed as a prayer. And so we get to see the prayer of Hannah. We get to also... Appreciate what it is that she has learned in the midst of her sorrow and in her pain. And so would you please stand for the reading of God's word as we read these verses from 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 to 10. Hear now the word of God. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble binds on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap and makes them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in the darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this evening. Let's pray for that together. Lord, like Hannah, would you fill our mouths with songs of joy tonight? Help us to rejoice in you and to have joy that never fades. Give us your Holy Spirit to make it so. We are absolutely helpless and dependent on you for every good thing. Would you give us that good thing tonight? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I don't think I've ever told you in the pulpit the story of Horatio Spafford, but it is very difficult for me to imagine you being in this church for long without eventually hearing the story of Horatio Spafford. But in the end, I cannot assume you've heard it. Uh, You may have heard it many times, and I may have even accidentally used Horatio Spafford's story in a a sermon illustration. I cannot remember. Uh, But just for the sake of making sure you know this wonderful story, uh, Horatio Spafford, it's not wonderful, it's difficult. It's full of pain and difficulty and bittersweetness. Horatio Spafford was a lawyer in Chicago and Two of his sons, along with all of his investments, were burned up in the Great Fire of Chicago in 1871. That was the first of Spafford's tremendous sufferings. Um, the second took place two years later, after he was financially crushed. His family decided to travel to Europe. And his plan was that they would go ahead of him. His wife and his four daughters would go To Europe, and then he would join them later once he had gotten his affairs in order. However, as the ship was crossing the Atlantic Ocean, the ship with his four daughters and his wife sunk. It was struck at sea. There was a collision with another ship, and all four of his daughters drowned. His wife was the only one who survived. She sent uh, a telegram back to her husband in New York and said, Saved alone. And so Horatio, of course, was on his way to Europe. And as he was going to Europe, the boat he was passing over, the location where his daughters were believed to have died, he began to write and he began to write the words to the song, It is well, it is well with my soul. And again, I, I suspect if you've been in church for any length of time, you have probably heard the story Of Horatio Spafford and the true story behind it as well. Part of the reason why Spafford's story is so well known and so remembered and so recounted from pulpits is because there is something we sense about that song. There is something sacred about that song. And I think part of the reason why is because as we sing those words, we know that it's a song that is born out of incredible depths of pain and incredible levels of suffering. There are other songs like that as as well. When you sing Amazing Grace, you think of John Newton, you think of the things that have happened in his life that brought these lyrics to life so that there's something more than just, we need some words to go with this music. There is something deep and meaningful there. There is something about words and lyrics and songs that were born out of suffering and loss. Something that makes us lean in. This person has seen the Lord, even though he has also seen the darkness of his providence, and yet he or she has emerged with the sort of faith that I want to have. It's the sort of song that doesn't come cheap. And what makes Hannah's song tonight so precious is that it didn't come cheap. It's a song that came out of the furnace of suffering, and yet Hannah emerges from the flames, telling all of us, in essence, he's worth it, he's good, you can trust him. Now, what did Hannah see? These events are not the result of wild, random chance. That's what she saw. She saw that the things that happened in her life even though it happened over a number of years and it involved her going through incredible suffering over long stretches of time, she says these dealings were a reflection of the nature and character of God himself. She has been in the pit. She's been into the crucible. And when she comes back, what is she seeing? What is she saying? Well, she comes back. If you wanted to sort of categorize what she says, She really says three things. She has three messages for us. She says, first, his holiness is greater than all. Second, she says his power is over all. And then third, his graciousness covers all. His holiness is greater than all. His power is over all. And his graciousness covers all. That's our outline for tonight. Hannah shows us that who God is matters. Theology matters. She says it's made an impact in her life. It's helped her understand how her life has gone, what has happened over the last few years. And so this son that she has now is a beautiful expression of God's nature. And the song that she sings is an expression of God's nature. And how God's nature and our story fit together. They go hand in hand. And so she's modeling for us how to do theology, isn't she? Because we know who God is. And because of that, we know who we are. People who don't know God don't know why things happen the way they do. They live what they think is a chance universe. In a sense, there's no sense in picking out... The world around us trying to understand things, trying to see patterns, trying to see what could possibly be happening or whether there's any purpose because they don't see it. And yet Hannah is here and she's saying, I do understand. And she makes it a matter of worship. It brings songs to her mouth. It brings joy to her. So let's look at each of these points. The first thing that she has learned is that God's holiness is greater than all. She talks about God's holiness uh, throughout this entire song. She repeatedly refers to his holiness. I'm just going to pick some phrases out to show you this. She says, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. She says in another place that the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. She's appealing to his holy character. He judges rightly. She says, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And so you see interspersed throughout this song is this insistence by Hannah that God is morally pure, that he is holy, and also that he's a perfect and good judge. Uh, Hannah has learned that God in his holiness, he he does what's right. He is the judge. I mean, look at her story. She she was barren. She was unable to have children. Uh, Peninnah. Her her rival took every single opportunity that she had to sort of twist the knife into her side in her most painful moments. Um, Peninnah is having babies left and right, and Hannah would give anything just to have one. And in her desperation, she called out to God. And she made this prayer, and the the prayer she made was conditional. It it was not a prayer expressing divine obligation. She, She said, if... You will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and forget not your servant. I will give him to the Lord. And so in essence, she's almost asking God, will you remember me? Will you look on me? Will you look at the way I'm being treated, the sort of suffering that I'm enduring? Will you remember the ways that Peninnah has mocked and judged me? Will you remember this, God? And and then when God gives her her son, it's as though he's saying, yes, I will. Yes, I will. Look, I will remember. I will remember your suffering. I'll remember her mockery. Why? Hannah says she sees why. Because he is holy. Now, she gets to see the holiness of God and in the justice and the way that, that God shows justice to her. And shows kindness to her. Now sometimes we don't get to see that. Sometimes we don't get to see God's holiness in action when other people wrong us. Uh, To use a really uh, mundane illustration. You know. uh, Somebody cuts you off in traffic and honks their horn at you. Or mistreats you in traffic or something like that. You never get to see justice happen in that moment. Not usually. Now uh, I, I think I was just talking to somebody who. Who, heard about, uh, who, who was getting passed by somebody. Somebody was going like 90 miles an hour. And then later on, they said they were driving down the road and they saw that person pulled over by the police. And it was a sweet moment of justice. Um, but that very rarely happens. I don't know if I've ever seen that in my own life. Um, sometimes evil gets dealt with. Sometimes it doesn't. And, and many, if not most evils in this life, we won't get the satisfaction of seeing God's holiness deal with it. In fact, it it, it waits until the last day, something that we still haven't haven't gotten to yet. We haven't gotten to the last day. And so when we endure sufferings, when people wrong us, we have to trust God's holiness. We don't get to enjoy it yet. And, And here Hannah says, she says, when you gave me this child... I saw your holiness on display. I saw that you take evil and sin and mistreatment seriously. I saw you break the bow of the strong. That's the terminology she uses. She says, I saw you close, close the mouth of the arrogant. I saw you weigh the actions of others. And I saw you raise me up when you saw evil gloating over me. These are all things she says in the song. And so she doesn't believe this now. She doesn't just believe in God's holiness now because God gave her what she wants. She already knew it. She already believed it. But what does he do then? He confirms it for her. She has seen with her own eyes what she already knew in her heart. God is there. He is listening. He does remember you. And if he is not acting, it is because of his wisdom and because of his goodness, it is not because he's forgotten you. In a sense, Hannah learned what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews eleven six whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Here's this is what I would say to you if you're in a, a deeply painful trying season right now. Don't wait for events to turn in your favor before you believe the truth about God. Don't wait for things to become favorable in your life to suddenly say, yeah, I guess I I can see that God's there now. Um, Follow the example of Hannah. Believe, what did Hannah do? She believed, she sought God, she trusted him, she cried out to him, she kept trusting him to do what's right. And, And for him, what's right might be in your life might be a hard providence. It might be a difficult answer to your prayers. It might be the answer you don't want. And so for him, because he's wise, because he's good, because he knows the whole scope and picture uh, and the fabric of your life, what he wants for you might not be what you would have chosen. See, why does he do what he does the way he does? Because he's wise, he's wiser than you. He's wiser than me. He's wiser than anyone here. Um, He knows what's best for our souls. We don't always know what's best for our souls. If you asked, if, if if God consulted you and said, what would be best for your soul? You would probably say, I would like things to keep going well. That is probably the answer you would give. God, I would like things to keep going well for me. And... God knows whether that would actually be what's best for your soul. It may very well be that worldly success is not the thing that is best for you. In fact, I can think of times in my life where I did not succeed and I know that was better for me. Don't wait for God's providence to favor you before you say, well, now I know that you're holy. Now I know that you're good. He is good no matter what's happening in your life. Because believe it or not, if if you know even if you, if you know you might not see it until far, far in the future. You may not see the, the result that you want to see. And then when, you, when, you, when I say that, when I say, believe God, even if you're not going to see the result far off in the future, that is not me saying, have blind faith. It is knowing his character and knowing that he's good and knowing that he's wise. The judgment of God and his holiness for Hannah have actually become very precious to her through her experience, through her loss, through her suffering. She says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder from heaven. The wicked shall be cut off in darkness. There's some sense in in which Hannah finds comfort remembering God is holy and that he'll always answer evil in his own perfect and holy way. Ask him to help you do the same thing tonight. That that requires trusting his goodness. That requires trusting his wisdom. And that requires trusting, uh, seeing beyond a fog that you can't see through. And knowing that he can. It's not easy to do. Hannah sees with her eyes what she already believed by faith. She sees that God's holiness is above all. First tonight. The second though. Hannah sees that his power is over all. His power is over all. When we talk about God's power, uh, when we talk about God's sovereignty, we're really talking about the ability of God to do anything and everything that he decrees. Uh, Listen to what this looks like in Scripture. Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and in the seas and all deeps. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. Daniel four thirty five, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, "What have you done?" That is the sovereignty. That's the power of God. Or Psalm one fifteen three, our God is in the heavens; He does all that He pleases. And we could go on. We could quote verses about the power of God uh, until time for the the sermon to end, (laughs) if we wanted to. But Hannah has seen this very real teaching work its way out in her life. Uh, He isn't just holy. He's powerful. He's sovereign. Um, And God's sovereignty has a very practical application for Hannah and, and for us, and that means in a sense that, and what it, this is the practical outworking of it, it means that we don't get to know what's going to happen, and we don't get to predict the way things are going to go. We can't look at our life, we can't look at the situation in the world around us, and get any sense of inevitability when we look out. Maybe you have a pessimistic outlook. I tend to be a pessimist. I call myself a realist. That's what pessimists do. We call ourselves a realist. And that tends to be my outlook. Um, but guess what? The sovereignty of God means that I don't get to be a pessimist. It also means that I don't get to be a short-term optimist. <laughs> it means that in the short term, things might not, might not go well. I might croak. I could die right here on the spot right right now. I really hope that doesn't happen. I want to at least finish the sermon first. Um, but the sovereignty of God means we don't get to presume any of those things. James tells us this. He tells us in James 4, 13 to 16, he says, come now. He's talking about the sovereignty of God. He says, come now. You who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. We will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. What is is James talking about there? He's talking about people who look at the world around them and they think they know how it's going to go. They look out and they say, oh, the world's getting worse or, oh, the world's getting better. And James is saying, actually, you, you can't know that. You can't know that one way or the other. God is sovereign. You don't know what's going to happen. But you do have to trust the sovereignty of God. In a sense, Hannah's application is James's application. She says life is less predictable than you think. Just because things are going smoothly in your life doesn't mean you're in the clear and you can rest easily and you can rest lazily. What does Hannah say? She says wealth is no security in a universe where God is sovereign. And she says, Strength is no guarantee of safety in a universe where God reigns. What does she say? She says, Not by might shall a man prevail. Why? Because God is sovereign. Hannah has seen that just because the providence of God has been generous to someone doesn't mean that it will always be that way. She didn't stay barren, and Peninnah didn't rule the roost forever. Now, why is that the case? Why isn't the world more predictable? Why is it more steady? Why doesn't the strong stay strong? Why don't the weak stay weak? Why don't the barren stay barren? Because of this powerful statement in verse 8, she says, This happens because the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Now, obviously, it's a metaphor. The world is not literally built on pillars. But she's saying that she's saying this: the foundations of reality that we see around us, everything we depend on to live and move and have our being in, even they belong to God. There's no way for us to look uh, at Him and complain and say, "Why did you cause things to happen this way? Why did you cause my situation to shake out like this? Why did you bring things to pass this way? Is that even allowed?" And the answer is, of course it's allowed. I can do anything I want because I am God. We need a profound appreciation for the freedom of God. The freedom of God to dispense with us and to dispense with the world however he wants. Whatever he thinks is wisest. Whatever he thinks is best. Whatever he thinks is good. Even if it happens to be in a way that we would not choose. Because we're not at the center, he is. And Hannah has, has learned what God is like and how we should live in this world. If our circumstances are one way, we need to know that can change. If we're poor, Hannah has learned that God could make you rich. And, and, if, and if you're rich, Hannah has said, look, God can bring you down and he can take away every penny that you have. We don't get to live in presumption about God or Of the world around us. Now here is the thing. This is the temptation. The temptation is. If we're strong today. We feel secure. Or if we're financially secure today. Then we feel strong. And if we're youthful. Then we think that we're always going to be young and healthy. And the truth is. God can take all of those things away. All of those things that we find our shelter in. And so if we're discouraged because of our weakness, Hannah says, God can change that too. And yeah, she's learned that because in the universe, God is sovereign and does as he pleases so that even a barren woman can give birth. That is a tremendous reversal. She doesn't get to look at her life and say, look, for 15 years, I've been trying to have a baby. I've never had a baby. And the order of the universe is so regular that I know for a fact I will never have a child again. Hannah might have said that to herself. And yet God says, no, no, I'm sovereign. This is my universe, not yours. So the sovereignty of God should mean the humility of man. We don't know what will happen. Only God does. Only God is sufficient for these things. And what does Hannah See, then, that we need to see, she sees that he is sovereign over all. It comes through in her song. Third this evening, Hannah tells us that his graciousness covers all. Hannah sees God's grace all over her life after what has happened. And we see this in a few ways in the narrative. The most obvious way is that she has seen how he takes those who have been devalued and disrespected and raises them up. Uh, Think of all the examples just here in the narrative. He lifts up the poor. He gives the shamed a seat of honor. He lifts up the humble. He brings down the proud. He makes weak people strong. He feeds hungry people. He gives children to the barren woman. These are all illustrations of God's graciousness in the narrative. And so in this song, Hannah is really anticipating the way God is going to be working throughout the rest of this book. This song is like an introduction to First and Second Samuel. Which makes sense. It's only chapter 2. It's barely started. Her song is like a theme for the rest of the story of Samuel and the rest of the story of David and the rest of the story of Israel as a whole. This is like a micro-narrative Of the entire story of God's people. Think of this. Samuel comes from the lowliest place he could come from. He comes from a no-name family. Elkanah. What is Elkanah called? He just called a certain man. His father is just a certain man. He's not somebody famous. Um, He's born from a barren woman who had to beg for him to come into existence. And she had to do it with tears and weeping. Think of David. He's a lowly shepherd. He's not royalty. He's the son that Jesse doesn't seem to prioritize when he's lining his sons up to meet Samuel later in the book. And this is what God did for Israel, right? What does he say in Deuteronomy? He says, I did not pick you because you were righteous or holy or, or good. I didn't pick you because you were more numerous or better than the other nations. He says, I raised you up from nothing, The story of Samuel is the story of David, is the story of Israel, is the story of Hannah. That's what Hannah's telling us in this this moment here. It's the theme of this book. It's one of the ways that Hannah sees that God's graciousness is over all. He's certainly over all of her life. The other way she sees his grace takes her song to a new level of importance because at the end of her song... She foresees and anticipates the Messiah. I want to take you to verse 10. She says this, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, Let's just acknowledge something. Any time we talk about God's anointed in the Old Testament, there are two levels of meaning at least. On the one hand, this is a book that anticipates a king in Israel. Um, Really, all of 1 Samuel is about getting us excited for the king who's coming. It's getting excited for King David. Um, And at this point in Israel's story, there's no king. There has been no king. God was meant to be the people's king, and yet he said earlier on in the book, they have—actually, re- he says it later in 1 Samuel, he says, they have rejected me from being their king. But before this moment, before this literal verse right here, where it uses the word anointed, this ver- the word anointed is never applied to anyone but a priest. So for the entire Bible, from Genesis up to 1 Samuel chapter 2— The word anointed only ever refers to the priests, the Levites. They are called anointed. This is the first time in the Bible when the word anointed gets applied to somebody who isn't a priest. And so Hannah makes the first direct scriptural reference to the anointed ruler of Israel. Now, in the Hebrew, the word here is, we translate it as anointed, but it's the word Mashiach. It's Messiah. The word Messiah just means anointed. And so Hannah is literally speaking of a Messiah here. And at this point, there's been no king that's been anointed. At this point, there is no king in Israel. At this point in the narrative, everyone does what is right in his own eyes, in his own sight, just like was happening at the end of the book of Judges, just like was going on in the book of Ruth. And on that level, Hannah's song is joyfully saying, The king is coming. And on the other hand, we know this, that Hannah is anticipating the coming of the Messiah, someone even greater than David. And so when we see God's anointed ones being spoken of in the Old Testament, and in some ways there's always this wish for an anointed one that won't go away, and an anointed one, a Messiah that won't die, uh, an anointed one that won't fail in his mission to be a rescuer for God's people. And so throughout this book, especially notice this, David is a constant presence who imperfectly reflects what the people need a Messiah to be. See, even as he saves Israel, even as he delivers them from the Philistines, even as he rescues them, he does it warts and flaws and all, and he leaves you wishing for a real anointed one who who could still... Who still wasn't going to come for a thousand years. You remember what Andrew calls Jesus after, after Jesus calls him? He, he goes to his brother Peter and he says, we have found the Messiah. He uses the same word for Jesus that Hannah uses here for the one who's coming. Hannah says, God will exalt the horn of his Messiah. She ends on this note of hope. She ends on this note of grace and anticipation. And you know, I don't know if it's, if it's occurred to you at this point, we've looked at, at Hannah's song, we've looked at these themes of, of overturning expectations and things like that, and I wonder if any of you have noticed this, that Hannah's song... Sounds an awful lot like Mary's song from Luke 1, 46. We call Mary's song the Magnificat. I just want to read you just some selections from the Magnificat and see if this doesn't resonate. See if this doesn't sound like Hannah's song. Listen to this. My soul magnifies the Lord, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For he has done mighty things for me and holy is his name. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. That's just, just a part of it. But do you see the profound similarities between Mary and Hannah here? Do you see what Mary did? She, she took the song of Hannah and she sang it from her own heart. Ma- Hannah is talking about a coming Messiah. And what is Mary doing? She's saying, I'm carrying him. If that isn't proof that Hannah is doing even all the way back in, her, in this song, she's pointing to Christ. I don't know what is. Because Mary is singing the song of Hannah and she's singing it for herself. Hannah shows us that his graciousness covers all. Even at this moment, the coming of the Messiah blankets the rest of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. Hannah is a model of worship for us. Because what does she do this evening as we look at this? She remembers what God's done. She looks back at the past, and she marvels at his faithfulness. She, she looks at the work of grace that God's done in her own life, and she finds herself lifting up God in her words. She, she doesn't just engage in formalism, where she just repeats religious-sounding stuff that she's supposed to say, but she actually says, I rejoice in your salvation. I don't just speak of your salvation. I don't just say the words I'm supposed to say, but I rejoice from the bottom of my heart, God, that you have done this and that you are like this. But listen, at the end of the day, this song of Hannah is wasted if we don't cast our eyes at the Messiah she was talking about, if we don't gaze at the anointed, because here she is a thousand years before the time of Christ and she's saying to all of us, You need a rescue that goes beyond kingship. You need a rescue that goes beyond the priesthood. You need a kingship that goes beyond the prophet. You need a Messiah who is prophet, priest, and king. You need Jesus. That's the message of Hannah. Let's pray. Our Father, I... I pray for those in trying circumstances and painful providences. Would you help them tonight to have eyes of faith as Hannah had? I pray for all of us that we would live in humility, recognizing that you are the sovereign and powerful one. But I pray especially tonight that we would follow Hannah's finger as she points to the Messiah. Help us to believe in him and to trust in him tonight. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, that we pray. Amen.